Hello, and welcome back to Beyond Boundaries. It's like the Mace song. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. I wish I had the copyright to that and I could actually play it right now because I'm pumped that you're back. My name is Justin Douglas, if you don't know. This is Beyond Boundaries. I'm excited you're here for this episode. Um, and hopefully you get the Mace reference. Um, and if not, go Google Mace, welcome back. Uh, you know, one of the most underrated rappers of the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you want to learn more about me or find the show notes for this episode, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com. You can interact there with feedback, comments, questions, or you can reach out via Instagram. I am at Pastor Justin Douglas. Also, please consider subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing. It really does make a difference, and I very much appreciate it. I uh, want to let you know that uh, it's been a minute. That's why I'm saying welcome back. Uh, it's been a while since I've done a podcast episode. Just life is happening. Uh, obviously, um, many of you probably feel like many of the rhythms that you had established um, pre-COVID, if you can even remember back to that time, uh, have changed. And then you get into a new kind of rhythm in the midst of COVID, and then things change and then a new rhythm and then things change. And I've felt that personally. I felt like I'm, I'll have a few weeks or a few months where things are really doing well. And I feel like I'm maintaining some type of rhythm with my life personally and work and things like this that are like side hobbies. And then uh, all of a sudden I have no margin left and I'm trying to figure out how to make everything work. So I'm excited because I've had some really great conversations um, in preparation for this calendar year. Uh, and, uh, and I've banked a few podcasts. So the next few weeks, we are definitely going to be having some conversations and uh, releasing some podcasts. So excited for you to hear some of those. And today, I'm really excited for this guest. I actually started following this guest on Instagram uh, and uh, just gave me so much life. But she had been mentioning she had a book coming out. And, uh, and I was just really looking forward to the book to come out. And then the book did come out and uh, I had the privilege of interviewing her. Um, her book is called Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. It's Bridget Eileen Rivera. Now, um, Bridget is a sociologist um, completing her PhD at the City University of New York Graduate Center, New York Graduate Center. Uh, she has worked with Revoice, Christians for Social Action, Preston Sprinkle's Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, where she contributed to the Digital Leaders Forum. You can follow her on social media at Traveling Nun. Um, this book is a really good book. What I, what I really appreciate about this book is it's very um, personal. Uh, it goes through various stories. This is a great um, introduction for those who are uh, new to the conversation that is the intersection of um, LGBTQ uh, Christians and the church uh, and some of the dangers and harms that have happened and continue to happen. Um, uh, you know, just on the back of the book, I'll read this to you. It says, uh, Re religious faith reduces the risk of suicide for virtually every American demographic except one. LGBTQ people. Generations of LGBTQ people have been alienated or condemned by Christian communities. Heavy Burdens helps Christians confront the ongoing effects of this legacy and empowers churches across the theological spectrum to navigate better paths forward. I think more books like this we need out in the world 
And if you are a Christian leader, uh, or even if you're not a Christian leader, um, but you're interested in understanding the intersection of uh, faith, the church, and sexuality, uh, this book, I think, does a great job of um, introducing the reader to some of those realities. And so I'm really excited for you to listen to my interview with Bridget Eileen Rivera. Here it is. Welcome, Bridget Eileen Rivera, to uh, the Beyond Boundaries podcast. Thankful to have you with me. Your new book, Heavy Burdens, uh, is out, and I have it in hard copy. But I'll be honest, I haven't even opened this copy yet because <laughs> I prefer audiobooks. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so for those of you who like audiobook, it's even available in audiobook. Although I do always buy the hard copy because I usually go through and like highlight at times, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's good resource to come back to. But uh, Tell us about the book, uh, Heavy Burdens. This is, uh, I, I've been following you for a while, seen it in process, I think over the last like probably nine months, just hearing you kind of talk about it and plug it. And now it's out and uh, yeah, share a little bit about the book. Yeah, so its name is Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. And uh, basically the book is unpacking the... Uh, experiences that queer people have in Christian communities and uh, why those experiences happen the way they do. And just kind of bringing people through what it looks like to be queer in the church and the causes of um, why it looks the way it does. And um, uh, my hope for the book is that it can be, I guess, a clarion call for the church to kind of finally see the queer community that is sitting in the pews of every Christian church uh, that is going to the potlucks in every Christian community um, to finally see us and uh, finally bring some changes that are really overdue or at least start talking about the need for change and how to make that happen. Like getting that conversation finally happening uh, because it's been necessary for so long. So heavy burdens, that's the book. That's my hope for it. And I, I'm excited to see what winds up coming of it. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm only halfway through the book, so I can't really speak to all of it, but I can say it's very personal in that you're sharing stories from, from people. And then you're also, what I think is interesting is like you're connecting history um, and primarily even like the reformation history of Mm -hmm. how sexuality kind of shifted and its understanding and connecting that to identity. I've, I've read tons of books on this uh, just mainly in my own journey as a pastor and into be becoming affirming. And um, I just haven't heard a whole lot said about like church history. Usually church history is kind of one of those things that in books like this, you kind of are like, well, let's just ignore that. Cause that's kind Mm -hmm. of the, that's kind of the scary thing that church history isn't on our side with affirmation, but you kind of actually take church history and do a little bit to say, well, there was a shift that happened here, not just in necessarily the queer community, but also um, in just how we see sexuality, how we see marriage, uh, how we see sex, even within marriage has really greatly changed in the last 500 years from a, mm-hmm. uh, an ethical standpoint in the church of what we would consider 
okay, not okay. I don't want you to give away the book, but speak to that a little bit on like yeah. what made you determine to bring history into it. Is that something you're, you know, that you saw that connection right away or you picked it up over time? Yeah, well, I, I guess, um, I guess it was something that I picked up over time, um, mostly because I, I grew up in conservative evangelical communities and I, uh, you know, I, because of that, I received a Christian education. I learned all about the reformation, all about all the various, uh, things that went on during this time and the, you know, major, I guess, arguments and debates that were happening. Um, and one of those was the topic of celibacy and, uh, whether or not priests should be celibate. And, most of the time that's kind of just treated as like this thing that was in its own silo that wasn't connected or related to anything else. But actually that was a huge thing that uh, like the reason why it was such a big deal to tear down that requirement of priestly celibacy was because in order to tear it down, it required a complete reinvention of how sex was understood, how sex, human sexuality was understood, how marriage was even defined. Um, like in order to tear this down, the requirement for priestly celibacy, everything about how Christians think about sex and marriage had to be completely restructured. And that's very rarely, if at all, um, appreciated. Uh, and, you know, when I was growing up in, you know, evangelical circles, the focus is always on the past 50, 60 years and the sexual revolution that happened in the 60s and how that uh, is bringing about the downfall of American morality. And like, that's always the focus. But the truth is that the sexual revolution in the 60s was actually not that revolutionary. It was just kind of like what was going on in the 60s was just kind of everybody taking the next step in a series of steps that our culture has been taking going all the way back to the start of the Pro Protestant Reformation, where our understanding of human sexuality was completely restructured. Uh, and that carried tremendous implications for how all people live their lives, um, you know, cascading down to the present day. Um, and so when you look at a lot of the assumptions that the Reformation introduced to how we think about human sexuality, one of the biggest ones being that it's not reasonable to force a person to be celibate. Um, and when you look at that idea and all of the like rationale used to defend that idea that was introduced in the Reformation, the implications of saying that and believing that are so vast and so wide that um, it changes everything. Uh, so, you know, I call it the Protestant sexual revolution. 
Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't call it the Protestant Reformation. It's a, it's the Protestant sexual revolution, uh, because in my mind, that was where it started. That was the real revolution back then, 500 years ago. Wow. And, and that's so interesting because it kind of has this double-edged swordness to it because Mm -hmm. it's, it's the history that, that, that changed the way we look at marriage, the way we look at celibacy, mm-hmm. but it's also the history that brought such an emphasis on the Bible that in some ways um, eventually led to the word homosexual making its way into the Bible. I would say the Reformation and just our emphasis on biblical literacy, which, which I'm not saying is a negative thing always. Mm-hmm. I'm just more saying it's just very interesting to see all the touch points that the Reformation has to this conversation of inclusion of the LGBTQ community. Like it's, it's very, it's very interesting to, to think about everything that that set in motion. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Because um, in order to, in order to make this argument that forcing someone to be celibate is uh, unreasonable, what the reformers argued was that sex is attached to who we are as human beings, to our very nature as human beings, to our identity. Uh, And that was, again, revolutionary, like transformative. Uh, Nobody had ever thought of like sexuality being somehow attached to who we are as human beings made in the image of God. Um, That changed with the Reformation Luther said that sex was just as essential to a human being as the fact that he is a man or a woman is a woman. Um, And so when you tie sexuality to human identity and like, this is the thing, like I, I was always taught that it's the, you know, pagans and the heretics that attach sexuality to human identity, but no, it started all the way back then. Um, And when you do that, Um, now all of a sudden a person's sexuality speaks to who they are at like a deep level at the level of character and personality. Um, and this is where you start getting concepts of, um, talking about perversion, not as an act, but as an identity, as something that a person is just by fact of their existence, um, they are a pervert. Um, and then like, you start getting this idea of like heterosexuality being um, something that is not just the way, like, you know, like not just theologically correct, not just, you know, a, a correct belief system, but a correct way to exist in the world. You are the correct person if you are a heterosexual. And so you get all of these ideas of um, that, like you can trace all the way back to, some of these foundational changes uh, that started in the Reformation. Wow. So um, moving from church history to your history, I feel like, I think I remembered you saying you were homeschooled. Is this correct? Yes, I was homeschooled. High five. I was homeschooled too. <laughs> High five. Homeschoolers how, tonight. <laughs> how, uh, how long were you homeschooled? Like all the way through or like, I know we had like the, some who go to high school and then some, mm-hmm. I was, I was all the way through. 
Yeah, I was all the way through. I started in second grade uh, and then just all the way through, graduated and went to Patrick Henry College, which is the, you know, homeschooler uh, mecca. Uh, it's the only college in the country founded by homeschoolers for homeschoolers. Wow. And yeah. So I like, I was deep, I was deep into yeah. the homeschooling. <laughs> well, tell me about that transition because I, I growing, so I, my journey in some ways you could say is it, there's a similarity in that I was homeschooled. I understand the conservative circles that that is. And even like kind of the, the insulatedness of that, like, like mm -hmm. there's not a lot of, you're not necessarily given a value to consider other perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went to Liberty university, which I would say, yeah, probably more liberal than your experience, but still pretty, uh, insulated or at the very least, um, particular perspectives were protected, uh, from the students. Like you can't hear about that. You can't experience that or, you know, study mm -hmm. that. Um, what kind of led you out of that or, or at the very least led you to a more expansive understanding of what you knew about God knew about faith. Cause a lot of people who, in my experience from, uh, my homeschool days, who, who kind of come out of that usually just leave it all God, mm -hmm. faith, church, they, they kind of, and I'm not saying that all homeschooling is necessarily insulated. I know some people can do that in a very expansive open way. So I just want to be clear. Mm -hmm. I'm not, not trying to pick on homeschooling, but I guess I'm saying from a Christian perspective, often homeschooling is used as a way of like very particular belief systems being taught and usually uh, LGBTQ people not being necessarily uh, mm -hmm. included or represented well in that community. Yeah. 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 Um, I definitely, there was definitely uh, an, an emphasis on uh, kind of like I don't know, leading the nation, shaping the culture for Christ. Uh, and like, you know, you, I am supposed to be the next generation of like culture warrior that will, you know, be the salt of the earth and, you know, protect Western civilization from crumbling, that kind of thing. Uh, there, you know, was a lot, a lot, a lot of that mentality, uh, which carried over into my college experience. Um, I think probably, I guess the start of me stepping away from that was probably the 2008 election, actually, mm. uh, way back. Uh, that was when I started college. And I just remember watching Fox News and being so turned off by the ways that they talked, the things that they were saying, um, the ways that they claimed to not be biased when they clearly were. Um, and it really bothered me. It really turned me off. And it, because of that, I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't, because, you know, my Christian faith had been so tied to conservatism for so long that it almost felt uh, sacrilegious to question conservatism, which is weird because like our politics, um, you know, is not identical with our faith. But like for me, it just like it felt that way. Um, and but yeah, that year it was supposed to be the first year that I would vote. 
um, as an 18 year old. And I uh, was just so upset by a lot of the things that I was seeing and hearing from people within my community during that election that I just stepped back and I like, I didn't like register as a Republican. I registered as an independent and I was like, I'm not even voting. Um, uh, Cause like, you know, I didn't feel like I could vote for, you know, the Republican side. And like, to me, voting for a Democrat was like, you can't do that. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm just not voting. Um, and I guess that was the start for me was like, for the first time in my life, like seeing a difference between my faith and like the conservative politics and realizing, wait a second, this does not necessarily reflect Jesus. This is not, this doesn't feel right. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, from there, you know, when I graduated, I joined uh, an organization called Teach for America. I taught in a low income community for a, a number of years. And um, it was just more, more just seeing um, so much that uh, was different about the world than what I had been told. Um, and, you know, realizing that I needed a deeper faith, um, that was able to grapple with these realities than a lot of the kind of simplified, trivial, um, answers that I had been given for a lot of these things for so long. And so I guess that, that was kind of, for me, a lot, a lot of like what pushed me and, and got a lot of my thought processes started in terms of like moving away from, I guess, the conservative juggernaut of, yeah, yeah of Christian, Christian conservatism. Yeah. It seems like, uh, that was kind of the first like foundation shift thing that happened. Like, I think most people who kind of, and I know there's a popular buzzword now deconstruct or whatever you want to call it. Like mm -hmm. once that, once that kind of starts or you, you have a different way of seeing something, it, it's definitely like, can feel like the whole foundations like out, like even probably registering independent and like choosing that yeah. was like this big, like thing for you of yeah so much of that conservatism politically um, on the matter of, you know, heavy burdens, your book with, with uh, LGBTQ, did you, I mean, I, I see them as interlinked so, so deeply, the, 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 mm -hmm. the religious theology, but then also the politics of it. And yeah. obviously we have a party that, that, that hasn't necessarily uh, been the party of inclusion for, for this community. And then we have another party that's done better at that, at least not, maybe not everything they can, but done better. And then we have the church that supports and even props up with theology, a particular party, as you were seeing all that, how are you process processing that? Cause uh, you have your own story in your own um, you know, we, and earlier we talked about celibacy and from what I've heard you say, you're, you're committed personally to celibacy. So you're not against celibacy. You're against forced celibacy. I think that's really yeah. important to say. So yeah. explain a little bit of how that transition happened as you're holding those politics, but starting to kind of let them go holding these theologies. That's probably one of the only ways you've been taught to connect to God. So I'm sure that was, again, foundationless time, but you're also kind of figuring out the foundation of your own, you know, way of being sexuality in the world uh, as you're coming into adulthood. Can you explain a little bit of your own process in that? I just know uh, 
a lot of the listeners have maybe had a similar experience and could identify with some of that. Yeah, I guess I, I found myself definitely in kind of a no man's land a little bit, it felt like, uh, where I still was holding on to my faith, but also at the same time was like, okay, what does that even mean? Because so much of the pieces of it are now not there that had been so essential for so long. Um, and especially as I was thinking through my sexuality, um, it was just a very unsettling time uh, because I, it was hard to kind of make sense out of me, who I am, and the faith that I uh, was holding on to and like how to make all of this work. And so, uh, yeah, like you said, I, I eventually came to embrace celibacy. And I have found that to be a really life-giving thing for me. And the way that I came to that was uh, really uh, through the queer community. I uh, met someone who was uh, asexual and she introduced me to uh, a lot of things that were being developed by the ace community at the time. Things like... uh, queer platonic partnership and criticizing the uh, normativity of marriage and, you know, this idea, like not like challenging this idea that people, um, everybody wants sex in order to be happy or that everybody needs sex in order to be happy. And, um, uh, you know, just, it was very like, whoa, (laughs) to me hearing this. And it was also really it was divorced from Christianity because this ace person that I was talking to wasn't a Christian. So she was just talking about her queer community, what she was thinking about. And I was like, whoa. And as I like was thinking about it more, I was like, you know, this actually like, this is something that sounds really appealing. Um, And it, like makes sense with uh, a lot of uh, things that I understand from the Bible, you know, like I don't see marriage being this, you know, thing that's on a pedestal in the Bible, the way it is in church culture. And, you know, a lot of the criticisms that I saw from the ACE community towards this, like, you know, transcendence of sex and marriage, I really felt were echoed in a lot of what I knew from scripture. And so hearing her talk, what she wanted out of life, uh, really had an impact on me. And I was like, you know, that I kind of want that life too. And I, I see so much that's appealing and about this life that's not centered on needing sex, on needing to be married in order to be happy. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that I guess was the start of me. Like it was a, it was a real, um, I don't know, I guess epiphany moment for me because in my culture for so long, I had believed that you either get married or you're lonely and miserable. Like that was, that was the dichotomy. It's either marriage or you're lonely and miserable. And so like 
it was really hard for me to see how I had any options as a gay person that did not end with me being miserable because if I like, it felt to me like the only option for a happy life was to get married. But if I marry the opposite sex, then uh, like I'm going to be miserable because I'm going to be like trying to like fake something that like is impossible for me. Um, If I marry the same sex, I'm also going to be miserable because it's going to conflict with um, what I understood um, the Bible to be communicating to me um, about, uh, sexual ethics. Uh, and I, I felt like I had no choice in my life that would not like just destroy me internally. Um, and so like meeting that person and like discovering celibacy was like, like, whoa, this is, the solution. Like (laughs) I don't have to get married, um, uh, in order to live a happy life. Um, and it immediately took so much pressure off of me as a gay person, because Mm -hmm. I felt, I felt like I had to, I had to figure out what I believe about marriage in order to, live a happy life. And, you know, like I had to like figure out my theology, come to like convince myself that one thing was true or not. And then like, you know, go with it. There was so much pressure around what do you believe about sex? What do you believe about marriage? And like discovering that like I could live a happy life and be celibate for me took a lot of the pressure off of those questions because now my life happiness does not depend upon how I define those things. Um, Now I'm still, I'm, I'm living a happy life. I am doing my thing and I can freely think about my theology on sex and marriage without having like the stakes so high of whether or not I'm going to be able to like, thrive and like be a human being. Mm. Um, and so for me, like it was liberating. It was a relief. Um, and it gave me the freedom to approach those questions, um, from a more, a safe place, a place where like, you know, I'm, you know, don't have, uh, like so much that's writing on these questions, Um, and you know, I'm able to kind of like, just think through them like any other normal theological question, uh, without so much pressure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, that's good. So, so one thing I've learned in, um, being around, uh, people who are in the queer community who are, who have committed to celibacy is that, um, you know, there's kind of in my experience, two sides of that coin. There are people who speak of it the way you do, which is like Mm -hmm. a really good thing. And then there's other people who speak of it as a really negative thing. And we've already kind of talked about some of the negatives of celibacy. Mm -hmm. But what I find is that I find obviously if it's forced or it's coerced upon Mm -hmm. like them, then I think it's almost always going to lead to bad bad outcomes. Like it's it's just not it's not it it needs to be something like really almost you feel called to. I almost feel Mm -hmm. like I mean, I don't 
I, I sometimes am not sure that we have great definitions of calling, but mm-hmm. even that it needs to be almost like something you really feel that this is like, you know, this is for you. But then yeah. on top of that, um, it can't be something that you don't like you, you refuse yourself intimacy. And I think in mm-hmm. American culture, intimacy is always almost defined as like a romantic relationship or a um, sexual relationship. It's almost always kind of mm-hmm. defined in those terms. Yet um, what I think, I think the, 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 the queer community has to teach the church is that intimacy can be found in a number of areas outside of marriage, outside mm-hmm. of even like your typical family and children. Not that it's not in marriage and it's not in having children that you can experience intimacy. You can definitely experience intimacy in those places. Um, but that it's not limited to those places. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes the church teaches that. So can you speak to that a little bit, how you maintained relationships and even today continue to maintain relationships of of intimacy while also committing to celibacy? Because I think some people um, feel like I'm not just sacrificing celibate, like I'm not just becoming celibate, but I'm also committing to a life uh, where I won't have deeper intimate relationships. And I would say some LGBT people I know actually sometimes I think have deeper intimate relationships um, even in their celibacy. So talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about that. Yeah. um, I, I love that you are bringing this up about how the, the queer community is doing so much to expand our understanding of intimacy and meaningful relationships. Cause it's absolutely true. Um, If there's one group of people that is, Um, really um, exposing the harm of putting all our eggs in one basket, which is sex and marriage. Um, It's definitely queer people, Um, queer people. They, um, we, we have this concept known as chosen family and the, where that came from uh, was a result of so many queer people being rejected from their biological families. Um, And so this idea of chosen family came about where you um, are family with people, not just because, not because you were born into um, the family, but because you chose each other. Um, This person is your mom. This person is your dad, your queer mom, your queer dad, your queer sister, your queer sibling, your queer brother. Um, And though like those concepts are so powerful and so ingrained within queer culture uh and uh, friendships also are just so so much more there's so much more depth to them than um what i have often found outside of the queer community because um there's you know this understanding that again friendship is a meaningful uh Thing that doesn't necessarily need to uh, be second to other relationships, like to, to a romantic relationship. Um, so all, all of that. And um, yeah, I think that when it comes to celibacy, a lot of people do experience it as an incredibly difficult, lonely thing that is incredibly toxic. And it's almost always because that thing is being forced upon them. Um, They are not being given any ability to uh, decide for themselves if this is what they want. Um, And that's just, it's extremely harmful 
every time. Uh, because when you are attaching this one singular thing onto a, a person's ability to uh, belong um, in Christianity, to be accepted by God, uh, it just, it's such a weight. Um, it's such a burden to use, um, you know, the title of my book on, on people. Um, so, so yeah, so it, it, Forced celibacy, mandated celibacy is just, I find it to be unhealthy. Um, I don't want to say every time because, you know, there's probably people out there that don't experience that, but so often uh, that's the case. Um, and for me, I think the reason why I have not um, experienced it that way is first and foremost, because it was introduced to me through queer people. It was never introduced to me as this toxic thing that um, I need to do in order to be accepted by God. Yeah. Um, I never actually considered celibacy ever um, within um, my faith context until queer people introduced it to me, which is actually very rare. Um, it's not something that I think is, you know, most people's experience, but in my experience, for whatever reason, I just never even thought of it. Like the only option was to get married, either, you know, straight marriage or gay marriage. It was one or the other. Yeah. Um, so the concept was not introduced to me in a toxic way where like, you have to do this. Um, in order to be a Christian, it was just, it was never even on the table. It was queer people that introduced it. And because of that, it was this thing that I was being invited into. Um, and it was this, uh, like really beautiful vision that was being presented to me that was like, oh, dang, that is like, that's an incredible way to live. I want that instead of this is how you have to live, you better do it. Um, and so it was just like, it was such a different introduction for me. Yeah. Um, and because it was introduced to me in those ways, you know, I, I wasn't pursuing it in the context of like, oh my gosh, I need to not have sex. Otherwise I'm going to be sinning and God is going to be displeased and I might go to hell. Um, like I, uh, I began pursuing it because I was, you know, trying, I was pursuing a life that I wanted, um, uh, not trying to escape a life mm. that I didn't want, which is like yeah. hell and damnation. I was pursuing yeah. something that I did want. Um, and I also, as a result, felt a lot of freedom to explore how to make that life work. You know, when we, when we have something, when we have a vision for something that we want, we are going to like do whatever we can um, to make that work for us. Um, and so, you know, because it was something that I wanted, it was something that I saw a lot of beauty in. I also felt a lot of freedom to figure out how can this work for me? Like, what, what do I need in my life to make this a reality? Um, and so um, I have just, I've discovered that um, being in a partnership with another woman is a really 
um, like um, healthy thing for me in uh, pursuing celibacy. And that has been um, just a tremendous blessing in my life um, to have a partner who also similarly wants the same things as I do out of life. And we're pursuing this together um, and we love each other. And, um, you know, we have built a life together. And, you know, the interesting thing that I get asked a lot is like, how are you, how, like, how do you not like, how do you deal with sexual temptation in your relationship? Um, and like, to me, like that question feels to me like asking, how do you deal with sexual temptation with like one of your siblings? That's how it feels to me when I hear that, because it's like, well, I, I'd never have sex with my sister because that would ruin our relationship. (laughs) And I don't want to, like, I don't have like that, like, ew. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And like, that's the kind of relation, it's not identical, but that's often how I feel is the kind of relationship that I have with my partner, where it's like, like, we are not together. Like our relationship is not based on sex or like romance or any of those things. And so like to introduce something sexual into our relationship that like terrifies me because it would actually probably destroy what we have, um, as partners. Um, and you know, sex, Sex tends to ruin, you know, people's relationships with each other very fast. <laughs> um, so I, I'm just kind of like, that's not what I want with her. That's not what we're doing. And if we did do that, like it would legitimately destroy what we have. It would ruin what we have. Mm. Um, I love what we have together. And so, you know, our life is just not based on those things. Like it's just yeah. not based on sex and marriage. We're living something completely different um, that like values something completely different. Um, and I, I think it's yeah. really hard for people, um, to like even conceptualize because we're so trained to see everything through this framework of, of sex and marriage and like only through that. That's so interesting because it had me, I flashed back to I, I lived in Boston for a while and I lived in an intentional community there mm-hmm. where we had like 27 people in a house together. And, um, and uh, we were doing like community work in the community, but you know, we each would take turns doing meals and dinner and cooking for everybody. This is a large mm-hmm. community. And, and every morning we would wake up and have like a time of connecting like devotionals together. Um, like whoever had to go to work the earliest, we had to get up before that. And the whole house got up before. And like, you just had this like rhythm to life that was very different than any family I had been a part of or mm-hmm. any community I had been a part of. And, and I think what you're really saying is like, there's, there's new ways of doing community that we maybe haven't considered that. Mm-hmm. It, that was a very life-giving time for me is what I guess I'm saying yet. Mm-hmm. I don't have that rhythm of life today nor probably would it be what I would need today, but I would say like, it's what I needed then. And it provided mm-hmm. a lot for me in that, in those moments. And, um, and, and I guess what's, what's interesting to me is also considering how much of this isn't really that new, like that, that there's, that there's probably historical realities of, of mm-hmm. partnerships and obviously communities that are intentional, um, monastic, you know, d- movements and things like that. Um, 
but but how much of it is necessary right now for the church to say hey let's tap into these roots because they do mm-hmm. have something to teach us it seems like so much of what you're what you're talking about is like this renewal of some of that i, I don't know mm-hmm. maybe, maybe i'm maybe i'm maybe i'm drawing a connection to that kind of monasticism that isn't really there but i guess i'm more saying like at the very least thinking creatively about how we you know connect with other people in intimate relationships that are beyond marriage and sex that are that yeah. are and that and that that can be enough like yeah. if the alert if the church could just learn that you know and uh, you know one of the hard things i've learned as a pastor is that being single in a church is terrible like mm-hmm. even if you're not <laughs> even if you're not gay like just being single yeah. in church and because everyone's asking you like, so when are you getting married? And it's like, I can even be a pastor who's like not preaching that way. Who's intentionally trying not to, you know, but even with that, it's like, I'm also a married man. I'm the example Mm -hmm. on stage of someone who's, who's married, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's just so hard to enter into your typical church context and not see marriage put on a platform, even if the staff or, or leadership is trying not to do that. It's, so it's definitely your story and others like it, I think are going to mm-hmm. be very helpful for maybe the next generation who sees other options, especially yeah. if they're the type of people who might be discovering their sexuality and trying to understand it and still being able to, what I love about your story is you were able to hold your faith. Most mm-hmm. people I think have to walk away from it before, and then come back to it if, if they ever come back to it, because yeah. that's what the church has kind of told them. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. And one thing I want to emphasize, um, and I know we're like wrapping up, but I want to like just emphasize this because I think um, this happens especially in um, churches that are still articulating traditional um, beliefs regarding scripture. Um, They will hear a story like mine and be like, okay, she's figured it out. She's figured out how to do celibacy. Um, and then when they meet a gay person who's struggling to be celibate, they'll be like, okay, well, you should listen to Bridget because she's figured it out. And like, she'll help you figure out how to be celibate with the like undertext of, or the subtext of, because that's like what you need to do in order to be a good Christian, yada, yada. Um, And it's like, no, that's not actually what needs to happen. What I'm hoping people hear in my story is not like, okay, Bridget's the new kind of celibate person that we need to send the gay people to, to get them to be celibate. It's to, I want people to hear like, if you want anyone to be celibate and actually find life in it, actually be able to flourish in a relationship with Jesus in it, then you need to let go of telling them to be celibate. Like just let go of that, let go of that need um, and let people figure out what they want for themselves, figure out what um, uh, they, uh, feel the Holy spirit is leading them to, to do for themselves. Like this is not something that needs to be pushed <laughs> yeah. onto people. Um, uh, you know, let, 
let queer people explore their faith, explore their theology and decide what the Holy Spirit is speaking to them on their own. Um, and that's, that's really what I want people to hear in my story is that like when we are given the ability to do that, like many of us will choose to be celibate because that's really what we want. Um, many of us won't because we feel the Holy Spirit leading us in a different direction. Um, but many of us will. Um, but when you like close off the ability to, you know, have any kind of agency over like discerning your walk with the Lord, well, it just, it kills, it kills everything. Um, and so like, that's what I want. Um, that's what I hope is that like people just like let go of the need to push this um, and just like give queer people the ability to make these choices and decisions for themselves to discern their walk with Jesus for themselves with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's good. So just a point of clarity for anybody listening, you, you would say someone can follow Jesus faithfully and be in a same sex marriage. Yes. 100%. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And so, the same for so many other, you yeah. know, theological issues that, you know, intelligent Christians disagree on um, and see differently and live out differently, but nevertheless are, you know, equal in standing in the eyes yeah. of God um, and, you know, co-heirs to the kingdom of Christ. It's, it's no different with how you see it with how you understand something like marriage or gender or sex yeah yeah bridget thank you for being on and uh here's your book heavy burdens tell people where they can buy the book where you would want them to buy the book how they can follow you online all that good stuff yeah so heavy burdens by bridget eileen rivera me and you can find it pretty much anywhere uh where you can buy books uh, and you can follow me online. My social, uh, my handle is at traveling nun. Um, and my website is bridgeteileenrivera.com. Awesome. And I will say this, I'm just going to put a plug in for your Instagram. You got a great Instagram and I mean, oh, I wow. guess Twitter, I guess Twitter. Cause you like kind of screenshot what you share on Twitter or maybe it's Twitter, <laughs> but yeah, but the, uh, the, uh, I'm constantly getting life from what you share. So thank you. And I know many others are too. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for being on. Have a good rest of your day. I appreciate it. Have a good day. You just finished another episode of Beyond Boundaries. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please rate, review, and share the podcast. Also, make sure to visit the links in the description. Finally, consider donating to my dad's Patreon or Venmo. It helps cover all the costs of hosting this podcast in all the places you enjoy listening. Any amount helps. All the links are in the description of this podcast. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging.